You may be seated. And as we prepare to come to the Lord's table, I invite you to give your attention to God's word as found in John chapter 13. John chapter 13, I'll read verses 31 through 35 about an awful yet wonderful moment. John 13, beginning with verse 31. Hear the word of the Lord. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And may the Lord bless this reading of his word as we give him praise for it. Amen. There are 39 books in the Old Testament that cover an historical period of approximately 4,000 years, depending on how you want to number it. But even that's a controversial statement. My point is that it covers a long length of time. There are 27 New Testament books, which are written over a period of about 70 years, encompassing just about that amount of history. Interesting. Such a relative short period of time compared to those Old Testament books, which encompass so very much, including the greatest redemptive act of the Old Testament, which was the deliverance of God's people from bondage in Egypt. But when you turn yourself to the New Testament and you look at the gospel accounts in particular, and of course there are four of those, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it is of note that the gospels as one scholar has noted, are essentially passion narratives with extended introductions. What do I mean by that? Well, just consider for a moment, if you look at the gospel according to Matthew, an entire third of that book is devoted to the last week of Jesus' ministry and the last of his ministry on earth. One quarter of the book of Luke. An entire third of the book of Mark. But when you turn to the gospel according to John, an entire half of the book deals with the final week of the Lord Jesus in the last days of his ministry on earth. In fact, chapters 13 through 19, as we have read from 13 this evening, compose an entire third of the book, which deals with one day. Why am I bothering you with all these statistics in tax season of all times. It's because the amount of time that is devoted to the material is an indication of the importance of it. When we watch a motion picture, we understand when the action slows down, when there's dialogue and a relative brief period of time is passing, they're drawing our attention to the particular event in that moment. It's important. They're, they're wanting to get something across artistically. Now, we know that there's far more than art involved in the writing of the gospel narratives. And yet the importance can't be glossed over. They clearly are pointing us to these moments. 
It's not that the rest of the life of the Lord Jesus is unimportant. And many of us are left to wonder, of course, what happened in childhood? What took place between his birth, other than that one little vignette we have when he was 12 and went to Jerusalem and, and amazed the teachers in the temple? What about the rest of his life? We realize the gospel narratives were never intended to be exhaustive biographies. They're telling us something that we need to know, and they point us to the cross, primarily, but also, of course, to the resurrection. Consider John's gospel account. It's 21 chapters long. The last week is recorded in chapters 12 through 19. Thursday to Friday. Chapters 13 to 19. The resurrection, chapters 20 and 21. John's the one who tells us that many other things could have been written. He said if they were all written down, the whole world could not contain the books. So, they went to the lengths that they did to record the material that they did to point us decisively toward that singular event that took place in the final week of the life of the Lord Jesus. And here we are on Thursday night, the night before, that culminating moment when Christ would lay down his life. So when John slows down and gives us this dialogue and narrative, it's not to de-emphasize the rest of the book. Everything he has written is by inspiration of the Spirit. It's not more scripture than the rest of the Bible. It's like those red-letter Bibles that many of us have on our shelves. The red letters tell us the words of Jesus. But the black letters are just as authoritative. And yet, we read, when he had gone out. Now, if you know the context or you let your eye wander up the page, you'll realize that that sentence refers to Judas Iscariot. Judas, who had dipped his hand into the bowl, who had eaten a morsel. After receiving that morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. And we could spend the rest of this night just on that one phrase. But we want it was night. It is a reference to the sovereignty of an almighty God. That a disciple who had gone off the rails, a man who had never had true faith in his heart, else he would have remained with the Lord Jesus. John tells us later in the letter had they and we think of Judas as well been of us, they would not have gone out from us. For had they been of us, they would not have gone out from us. He was never truly one of them, even though Jesus chose him to be a disciple. He did not have repentance and faith. And he went out. And yet, as he betrays the master, as he sells him for 30 pieces of silver, even in that, in the sovereign working of God, ultimately, Redemption and salvation would be accomplished. Don't ask this poor stammering preacher even to try to begin to explain what I just told you. We think of Joseph in the last chapter of Genesis as he confronts his brothers. Now that the truth is completely out, they know who he is and they know that he knows who they are and he has for a long time. Their father has died. Now comes the moment that they can expect retribution will occur. They had sold him into slavery, lied to their father, and told him Joseph was dead. And on all of the events that happened following that took place, 
Now the father is gone. Surely retribution will come. And yet Joseph says one of the most profound things you will hear from anyone at any time in any place. What you intended for evil, God meant for good. And through their selling Joseph, an evil act into slavery, God saved the nation by placing him second in command over all of Egypt, only under Pharaoh himself. Don't ask me to explain how all of that works. I simply am thankful that we have a sovereign God. That as Judas went out that night, as evil and wicked as the intents of his heart were, he ultimately only ended up accomplishing the will of God by Jesus winding up in the hands of the authorities, being put to death so that our sin payment was made. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself. God's purposes are far above ours. We couldn't conceive of an event like this, a story like this, a way of doing things like this. It's not the way that we would do things. And yet this story is told and retold the ages over. Many an heroic account of novels, motion pictures, draws from this story. The story of sacrifice, the story of the one who steps up when no one else will. The one who is betrayed, the one who ought to be treated the best of all, is treated the worst of all, and yet... In submitting himself to the worst, accomplishes the best. Words fail us. Yet God is glorified in him. And that is precisely because he offers himself as an atoning sacrifice. This is the cross looking at us. The disciples don't see it here. They will later. And glorify him at once. There was a lot of suffering to happen before that at once. And yet he speaks to them lovingly. Little children. We've had a little child in our house longer than we expected the last week and a half. I didn't wake up this morning hearing the little goop and the little sounds he makes that are so sweet. Looking at Ethan, looking at our grandchildren at any time or any young children. I can be out in the grocery store and see a complete stranger with a child and just makes me smile. This is a loving term, little children. He's not demeaning them. He's not speaking of their immaturity so much as he's speaking of his love for them in a way that we can understand and perhaps grasp. The time is drawing near. Only a little while I am with you. How much of this was sinking in? Very little. They would grasp it mostly after the events had taken place and the Holy Spirit enlightened them in the truth of it and brought it to their minds, as John tells us later. But he tells them, nevertheless, you will seek me. You will want to find me. You'll look for me. But you won't find me. A change is coming. Jesus will continue. He will die. He will be raised. He will continue to live. But the relationship will be different. He will be at the Father's right hand in heaven. He will no longer physically be with them. They won't be tramping up and down the dusty roads of Palestine, eating meals together, talking together. They won't be witnessing the miracles as they had. It's going to change profoundly. Now that same Holy Spirit that has filled the Lord Jesus will fill them, and they will be the ones who will undertake the work of the Lord on earth. But they don't grasp that yet. And then finally this. One of the main reasons we're here tonight. 
a new commandment I give to you, a new mandate I give to you on this Monday Thursday, Monday from mandate, remembering this command. Here in these moments, when his time on earth is drawing near, when every word is precious, what is it that he desires to tell his disciples? What instruction would he leave with them? What would he tell them? What are the last things you tell someone when you're leaving home for a long period of time? Maybe you tell them where the key is. Maybe you tell them what the code is to the garage door opener. His command is this, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. Love that is not grounded in mere sentiment. Many of us have struggled with feelings of love and desire and getting all kinds of mixed up feelings that are probably more along the lines of infatuation, at least especially when we were teenagers, than real love. But the love that Jesus is talking about is love that's, that's grounded in action. God lovingly created the world. What purpose did he have in creating the world? He was never lonely. He always had had perfect fellowship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There was nothing to disrupt that perfect union between the three Godheads, the three persons dwelling as one and triunity. He had no deficiency in himself that required him to act in a way that would result in a universe and this pale blue dot with now seven billions of people living on it or more. It was an act of love. Lovingly, selflessly, he created the world. And when we sinned and rebelled against him, why did the world continue? He would have been completely justified in destroying all. And yet, lovingly, there was grace and forgiveness and promise of a Redeemer, promising that the head of the serpent would be crushed, the seed of the woman would prevail. What could have moved him to make such a pronouncement, having created all things with understanding that they would go awry? Yet he lovingly created all things and us. You've been formed and fashioned in the image of God. You've been brought forth into the world, having been formed in your mother's womb, just like I was. God actively participating. It wasn't a remote biological event. Lord wasn't mindless of you meditating somewhere on a cloud while things just simply have gone their course. The Bible tells us in no uncertain terms that he's intimately involved in our lives. In him we live and move and have our being. He is the one who holds all things together. He's the one not only who created everything, but he sustains everything. You're breathing right now because he's giving you that ability. Your heart is beating because he's giving it that ability. We don't live in a closed system. God's providence is at work. We oftentimes can't make sense of it. Just like we read of Judas going out and we scratch our heads and wonder, how, why did it have to be that way? Why did the perfect, sinless Savior have to die such a horrible, ignominious death on a cross? Why, why redemption that way? All we know is that there, if there were any other possible way, God would have done it that way. And we know there wasn't because Jesus said, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from me. But there not being another way, it was his to drink, down to the bitter dregs. Why? 
because of love. Love that is beyond all description. The one subject that's been written about by more authors and poets and songwriters and wise people than we could possibly have record of. Everything from country music to rock music to simple poetry that stands out on the page. Even little children in school writing in crayon on a piece of notebook paper. Do you like me? Check yes, no, maybe. She loves me. She loves me not. All of the things that we have that pertain to the subject of love, and yet we can't even scratch the surface of its true meaning. And we cannot unless we look here. When we see love in action, love in a person, where the Lord Jesus Christ doesn't give his disciples mere empty instructions. Now, I know we've all worked for people who gave us empty instructions. They they tell us to do things simply because they can tell us to do things. Oftentimes, we've done menial labor for no reason other than the person in charge wanted to see us do it. Accomplished no purpose. My dad talks about when in the army, moving a sand pile from one spot to another spot to another spot, it accomplished absolutely nothing at all except to break down the poor guy that was having to move the sand pile. Jesus is not talking about busy work. He's not talking about empty instructions. He's talking about putting into practice what he is about to demonstrate with the sacrifice of himself. Love one another. If it were easy to do, there would have been no reason to give the instruction. We're not naturally inclined to do this. In our Peoria study yesterday, as we're going along through the life of David, and by the way, you don't have to be from the Peoria area to be in the study. I'm doing it, so that ought to tell you something. North Carolina boy in with the people from Illinois. But uh, guys, we get together, we're looking at the life of David, and we see where David, you know, he's gone out there, and he's, he's slain Goliath. The rocks hit the forehead. He's fallen to the ground. He slew him with his sword, cut his head off. I mean, the scripture doesn't mince any words there. Goliath was done. David is famous. Everybody's amazed. They even make up songs. You know, they're singing about him. And then there's Saul's son, Jonathan. The natural inclination of the heart would be for Jonathan to be jealous. After all, here's the man who's a threat to his own position. Saul is the king. Jonathan is Saul's son. And we've all gotten caught up in the soap opera of British royalty. Or maybe you haven't. God bless you if you've not. And all of the ins and outs of the titles. And who has position. And who has this or who has that. And yet Jonathan looks at David and he loves him. And their hearts are knit together. And Jonathan so loves David, he doesn't just feel it. He demonstrates the love by giving him his own equipment, his own garment, his armor, his sword. I told the guys yesterday I was struck by that, you know. I've got a pocket knife that's really special to me, and I told my son I'm going to give it to him, but I haven't done it yet. Jonathan gave David his sword. Now Saul responds like we would expect. He's angry. He's afraid of David. David's a threat. Saul hurls spears at him, even while David's playing the lyre, you know. That's the natural reaction of the human heart. Not to love, 
Not to sacrifice, but to defend against, get even with, get back at. Jesus cuts through the natural inclination as he is about to lay down his life and gives this command that we can never get past to love one another. Not because it's easy. He has to command it because it goes against our nature. Even as he dies and is raised and he ascends to heaven and sends forth the Holy Spirit and and we experience the glorious transformation that is the regenerating work of the Spirit so that we lose our heart of stone and we regain a heart of flesh. We have a whole new nature. And yet we still have to be told, love one another. Because the sin nature still rears up its ugly head and we don't want to do it. We're like the little kid that was in church whose mama kept telling him to sit down and she kept pulling at him to sit down. And he was on the front row of our congregation, locust. And finally, as I got up to do the sermon, she had tugged at him for about the sixth or seventh time. And he looked up there and said, but why does he get to stand up? You ever try to preach after a moment like that? <laughs> Another little fella, same sort of situation. Finally, he sat there with his arms crossed. His mom made the mistake of saying, I'm glad you're finally sitting down on your own. He said, I'm standing up on the inside. Is that not us? Do you not hear the Lord Jesus speaking to us lovingly yet firmly? 2,000 years later and we still don't get it. How is the world going to know that we're his followers? Because of our vast knowledge? Because of our ability to win arguments? Because we can get a bigger bunch of people together and yell than the other crowd has? Is that how they know? No. He says, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Think of the powerful witness that that's been down through the ages. When people are not inclined to the truths of Christianity, yet have been drawn to fellowships like this one because they see something in the people that they don't have. Acceptance and forgiveness and love being demonstrated in a way that is so compelling and so winsome, it's like a magnet attracting a piece of metal. They simply can't stay away. That doesn't work for everybody, and I know that. But it is our most powerful witness. It is the means by which we truly demonstrate, along with confessing the faith. Let's not diminish that at all. I don't go in for this stuff where people say, you know, preach the gospel if necessary, use words. What is that? Of course you have to use words. But... It is also a matter of action. Let's not diminish that either. We need to back up what we say by the lives that we live. And we do that as we love each other. And it's hard. I've been hard to love. Ask this dear soul sitting up here on the front row right now. My parents can tell you. We all have our moments. And I realize some people are easier to love than others. But we don't get to sit at home and pick the petals off the flower and say, I love him, but not her. I love her, but not him. 
love one another. Because after all, when Jesus died on the cross and He looked across that vast span of time in giving His life for lost sinners, I thank God every day He didn't do it on the basis of what I deserved. My atonement, my salvation, my place in heaven, I owe entirely to the love of my Savior. Not for anything that I've done or ever could do. Not for words that I've ever uttered or actions that I could undertake. But that man on the middle cross had the power and the authority to declare me to be his own. And will one day testify to the Father, and of this I'm fully confident, that he loves me. By what right could I possibly withhold love from a brother or sister in Christ, especially a brother or sister in Christ? If Jesus gave his life for me, Lovingly, selflessly, not because of anything in me that would warrant it or earn it or deserve it, but entirely because of his selfless love and grace. I have every reason to love others who are just like me, undeserving of grace, undeserving of favor. Not because I expect anything in return simply because the one who died for me said to. Now, I know that's not good. I read a book one time about parenting when I was trying to learn how to do it and never did learn. Ask our children. You know, and it, it, it downplayed things like don't tell your children to do something just because I said so. You know, that, that's poor leadership. I get that. Although there's a time and a place. I tell you not to go out in traffic. There's not time to explain why I'm telling you. Just don't go there. But I get it. But on the other hand, who's the source here? Who's the one uttering the command? Who's the one giving it? It's the one who has earned every right to tell me whatever he wants to do because I know when he speaks, he speaks lovingly. I don't have to question his motives. I don't have to wonder what there may be in an ulterior way underneath it all. He's saying it because it's right and it's good. And I want you to remember this. It's not simply that the Lord Jesus has the authority resident in him, which he does. He's second person of the Trinity. He is God the Son who has existed throughout all ages. There was never a time when he wasn't. Yet he left his Father's throne above, condescending, by way of incarnation, to be one of us. The throne in heaven that is his, is his by right. But in becoming a human being and living the sinless life that he did, he has also earned his place there. Laying aside all insignia and privileges as the Son of Man, he has demonstrated his true nature and character in living sinlessly and sacrificially, And he is enthroned in heaven, not only because he's the second person of the Trinity, but because by almighty God, he did everything that was pleasing to the Father. 
And it's his, not merely by way of who he is, but because he has earned that place of honor and it has been bestowed upon him because he went to the cross for us in doing the Father's will, in accomplishing salvation. He has shown us what love really is. Now, I can't spell it out for you. I don't know what you need to do. Maybe there's somebody you need to apologize to. Maybe there's somebody you need to speak to and make right. Or maybe it's just a matter of remembering and being thankful. Telling you things you already know. Like Vince Lombardi telling his football team, this is a football. Professional players knew very well what that oblong pigskin was. But he had to give them that talk to remind them about the basics. And we continually have to be reminded of the basics. We need to know things like justification by faith and effectual calling. We need to study matters of the sovereignty of God, and we need to do that astutely. But we need never forget that the Lord Jesus said, they'll know you're mine because you love each other. And if there is anybody anywhere that I want to be associated with, it's him. I'm learning more the older I get that I can do without a lot of things. Cable TV, music, a lot of things that I used to do that I thought I had to do. I'm finding, well, my body doesn't work well enough to do it anymore. I just don't have the desire all that much. I'm finding out things like football and basketball that I used to feel like I had to watch every time it was on. You know, I can miss that now. It's just not that big a deal to me. But being with Jesus, I don't ever want to get past that. I want to be numbered with him. The world might know that I'm his disciple. I don't care if they know my politics. I don't care if they know where I'm from so much. I can't deny that anyway. I had somebody the other day. I was, I was trying to use the plainest language way of speaking that I could use. I got out about three words, and she said, What part of the mountains are you from? <laughs> so many things that in the great scheme of the universe don't really matter all that much. But being a disciple of the Lord Jesus, that matters. And if there's anything I would want the world to know about me, it's that I belong to him. And so I remember the words of our systematic theology professor, Dr. Kelly, who stopped his lecture in mid-sentence one day, looked up from his notes, and looked us all square in the eye. And he said, if you don't love your people, get out of the ministry. And my buddy Tim Barton turned to me and he said, I wish he'd quit beating around the bush and tell us what he really thinks. (laughs) Sometimes... Being plain spoken is the best way to get a point across. And Jesus here is as plain spoken as you're going to find in anything that he says. He doesn't mince words. He doesn't state conditions. He doesn't give us a list of things to check off to be satisfied. And once that's done, then you can consider it. Love one another. Because, brothers and sisters, there is no one else on earth who has ever loved us like he loves us. So we come to the table of the Lord Jesus and we remember this night.
the night that he was betrayed, the night that he, in spending this precious time with his disciples that is described for us in such wonderful detail, takes the time to speak truth that matters. And we remember it. And we listen. And we observe. And we prepare our hearts to come to do what he said to do. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we bless your name and give you praise for our great and gracious Savior who has accomplished more than our minds can comprehend, who has demonstrated a love that is more profound than any song could ever express. But in looking at him and looking to him, we see that this is love, that he laid down his life for his own. So, Father, we come now confessing and acknowledging our sin. Forgive us, we pray. Forgive us our transgressions. Forgive us for the myriad of ways that we have failed to love each other as we ought to. And please accept our thanks in knowing that our sins are cleansed by the precious blood of our Lord Jesus. Praying, Father, that the power of the Holy Spirit will continue working in us. That, Lord, in repentance and in humility as we go forward, that we may more and more demonstrate that love that constrains us, that love that compels us, that love that moves and motivates us, that love that draws us nearer, nearer to you, the one true and living God. So, Father, hear our confession. Hear our expressions of thanks. And please accept our praise. For you are great and you are wonderful. In the name of Jesus we pray.